Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern Adventurer podcast. Coming up. Uh, I was chased in the night by two men with knives. I still don't know why fully, but I assume they thought I'd stolen their gold or they just didn't want me reporting on them being there. Maybe they were keeping their heads down, having robbed someone, I, I don't know. Anyway, they came after me with knives and I uh, jumped into my canoe. Canoe eventually capsized and I was left on the riverbank. Uh, having to walk out of the forest and eventually I got two sorts of malaria, almost starved to death. Um, I didn't know whether to mention it or not, but <laughs> I had to eat my dog uh, to survive. Um, and it wasn't, it, you know, this is a long, long time ago uh, and I felt this is the only way I'll ever see my mum and dad again. I'm John Horstall and on this weekly podcast we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have gone on some incredible adventures in recent years. My hope is that this podcast inspires you to get out and go on your own adventure. But before we start, I am building a community of adventurous people, so it would be great if you signed up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com, where I'll show you behind the scenes I do giveaways and offering you the opportunity to come on an adventure. Now, on with the show. On today's show, we have an English writer and explorer. Known for his immersive expeditions into indigenous tribes in unfamiliar terrain, in 2017 he made international headlines when he was reported missing in Papua New Guinea, but was eventually found. On today's podcast, we talk about that expedition and about what went wrong. I am delighted to introduce Benedict Allen to the show. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Benedict, great to have you on the show and thank you so much for coming on. Um, The list of adventures that you've done over the past 30, 40 years is truly remarkable. I suppose the best place probably to start is with how this sort of love of exploring sort of came about from such a young age. I, th- I think it was really due to my dad. I was very curious about the world, and I, perhaps like you, I used to read all sorts of accounts by, I don't know, you, you, you can guess, I'm Shackleton and Scott and Stanley and Burton and Speak and Livingstone, Captain Cook. You know, I loved all these tales. But what really made it real to me was my dad. My dad was a test pilot, and he was one of those people developing the Vulcan bomber and other aircraft as well. But seeing this Vulcan bomber in particular fly over the back garden, this, this huge aircraft with these massive delta wings, it's a very sort of charismatic aircraft. And of course, uh, this was in the 60s, it, it was carrying the British uh, nuclear deterrent. And so it's incredibly exciting that my dad would be flying this plane and he used to tip the wings of this plane as he flew over. And I think that's what made it real because... <sighs> I, I wasn't really a natural sort of explorer. I wasn't particularly, I wasn't a great sportsman. I wasn't a, a, even a, much of an outdoor enthusiast, really. I just I had this idea that I'd go off and, and see these places that Scott of the Antarctic and, and so on had seen, but it was all rather dreamy. Uh, so I had this idea of somehow going off to far off places, but having a dad who was a pioneer, and seeing him do this for real, it made me think, wow, even I could do it. And I think it was that, it, this sense that 
it was possible for even someone like me. We didn't have all that much money. I know I sound quite posh, but we didn't really. And my dad just had a pilot's wages. And um, it anyway, it, it seemed possible for me too. And uh, also I was quite vague, a rather sort of um, <laughs> whimsical sort of character. And my dad was too. I don't have this how he was okay in the cockpit of a plane carrying that might carry nuclear weapons I, I don't know but people thought oh I'm a bit of a dreamer you know but my dad was as well so somehow I thought I could do it because my dad could do it and I think the answer was that when in action as it were I am very focused but normally I'm just dreaming of getting out there again. Amazing and so with that you sort of had the confidence to explore the sort of remote re regions. Where was the sort of first one that sort of uh, triggered this sort of love of exploring in these remote places? It, well, it, 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 it was South America. I, I, I wanted to be like, a, uh, I wanted to be like Sir Walter Raleigh, really. Uh, it's a bit embarrassing, really, because I, I was such a dreamer. I mean, I just thought, It'd be amazing to to go to the Orinoco where he got lost, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. And uh, I thought, this is amazing. You know, he had these dreams of finding El Dorado. And I was really that naive. I thought, maybe I could El Dorado. I mean, it was that simple. And, of course, as it got nearer the point when I was going to launch out, uh, reality began to dawn on me. But I don't think anyone around me uh, believed I would do anything of any consequence they just thought, oh, well, he'll go off and he'll come back after a few weeks and it'll all have been quite a good adventure, like a sort of gap here. Um, but it turned into something much, much bigger. And the reason was I very, really, very quickly realised I was very vulnerable out there. I had no background training. I, I had no experience, really. I've been on a few scientific expeditions. But this was my go. It's my chance to do something big I felt and I realized the only way I was going to achieve my journey which became which evolved really into trying to cross the land of El Dorado was the, from the Orinoco mouth to the Amazon mouth the only reason I or only way I could do that would be to turn to the locals I didn't have any sponsorship I didn't have any experience but I knew that the local people didn't see these places which meant uh, mango swamps or tropical rainforest as a threat they saw it, these places simply as their home and if I could learn to live with the locals, then I'd be okay uh, because they could look after me, perhaps. And the other thing is they didn't have any money. and <laughs> I didn't have any money either. And I thought, ooh, maybe if I can make this work, it, it could be a way of progressing my career because um, no one's going to want to sponsor me. And so this is, this is the way to do it, become like the locals. So incredibly naive. Uh, and yet it worked just uh, <laughs> I I was basically helped by a whole lot of villagers of various sorts, indigenous people who didn't really want me to die on their hands, I think is what it was. And I, I got away with it, crossed an extraordinary uh, bit of northeast Amazonia, which no one else seems to have ever crossed before. There was no record of it. Um, and why would anyone, um, frankly? But anyway, I managed to pull off this journey, which was very hard. Um, except that 65 miles before the end, two gold miners set upon me. Uh, I was chased in the night by two men with knives. I still don't know why fully, but I assume they thought I'd stolen their gold or they just didn't want me reporting on them being there. Maybe they were 
keeping their heads down, having robbed someone. I, I don't know. Anyway, they came after me with knives and I uh, jumped into my canoe. Canoe eventually capsized and I was left on the riverbank uh, having to walk out of the forest. And eventually I got two sorts of malaria, almost starved to death. Um, I didn't know whether to mention it or not, but <laughs> I had to eat my dog uh, to survive. Um, and it wasn't... It, it, you know, this is a long, long time ago, uh, and I felt this is the only way I'll ever see my mum and dad again, which is by eating this dog. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it was a terrible ordeal, of course. Um, uh, but I, I did survive. Um, uh, as a twenty, I was twenty-two when I started the expedition. I was now twenty-three. I staggered out of the forest with these, well, with a bad case of starvation and um and malaria um so that was the beginning and it's quite a beginning but if you're going to make mistakes it is good to do them early on in your career um because i realize now i had to properly seriously understand this rainforest that had almost killed me that probably should have killed me because i was so vulnerable was so inexperienced and i this initial thought, this naive idea of just learning from the locals, it became a, a sort of philosophy, really, that uh, go to the local people because they are the experts. These people are the people to turn to more than anyone. They don't think in terms of survival. They think of just living in these places because the rainforest gives them their food, medicine, shelter. And I now went to New Guinea um, and I underwent a initiation ceremony to make me a man as strong as a crocodile that's that was the local phrase for what young men had to go through and it was it was horrendous um <laughs> i was beaten uh, every day for six weeks with the local boys I, I don't think there's a ceremony as brutal on the planet um i mean it was, it was really really bad. we were all given initiation marks our skins were cut repeatedly with bamboo blades up and down our chests and back so we had the marks of a crocodile, the sort of insignia, really, of the Nyara, the people I was living with. And uh, finally, um, that was done. But it was a sort of preparation. And I now knew myself, uh, as, and of course, I knew that culture a little bit more, but I also knew myself. I knew my strengths and weaknesses. And that's, of course, what was at the heart of the ceremony. You, you learned what it took to cope in a difficult environment. And that was a, a next stage, really, in my career. I began knowing that I should always turn to the local people, build on that experience. Uh, but I now knew myself as well. And uh, those two things, the philosophy and the sort of self-knowledge, uh, would arm me much better for future journeys. How long were you in Papua New Guinea for with this tribe? I was... I Ooh, I suppose... I mean, it's so long ago now. Um, it's been 1984, I suppose. And I was with them probably that first time, only three months, four months. I had been on the island, though, already for three months before I went with to them. So I was fairly uh, tuned in, but still incredibly naive. You know, I was still only a 24-year-old who was just doing his best. I was rather worthy in a way as well. I was thinking an end to imperialism. We don't want explorers anymore who are planting flags and asserting themselves. It should be all about uh, listening and learning. So it's quite sort of pious. So I had my little 
my philosophy now became my big thing that uh, we have to start thinking again. And I had read environmental science and ecology and so on at university. So it sort of all seemed to come together that turn, it's time now to listen to the local people. And um, yeah, so I did my best to do that. But um, I think it, it was an essential thought really that actually being vulnerable isn't necessarily a bad thing. We think we've got to go in as explorers, as adventurers, as, as people are strong. And this is always the way on the telly. You see explorers as triumphant and, and victorious. Um, but actually being more childlike um, or being more open, certainly, to whatever's out there can also be incredibly valuable and perhaps more valuable now than ever because we realise what we've done to our planet and how much we've got to learn. Uh, and that spirit of humility is actually essential, I think. Yeah, I think um, you were quoted as saying, if you go somewhere with a map, you will only come back with a more detailed version of that map. Yes, I worry about that phrase because uh, I, I, I've used maps myself a lot. I've depended on maps. Um, but I think what I was trying to say was that uh, you've got to be ready to discard knowledge that you come with. Yeah. And it's a tricky, it's a, it's a battle really that goes on in my head on every expedition. I come in there arrogantly in a way with my own agenda that I want to try and achieve something. I want to try and cross a certain place. I, I crossed the whole of the Amazon basin later on, 10 years after my first Amazon expedition. So you come in with your outsider's agenda, inevitably, but you've also got to listen and learn. And it's that tussle between the two. And I find myself always wondering how much I can discard and how much I can accept of a new place. I think that it, it's necessary in a way to have that dialogue all the way through a journey. Yeah, I think that was um, our first guest we had on the show, Charlie Walker, under his favourite quote, that was his. Do you know what? I, I met him in a pub. Um, we met, we went together for a nice little drink. And um, yeah, does he still owe me a drink? I, I, think, <laughs> I think I owe him actually because he was very generous. Um, but he, he quoted that at me, and I thought, oh dear, sounds a bit arrogant. Because um, you know, who am I to sort of come up with these dictums? Um, but I. Yes, I, I think it's it's just great to to go with that open spirit and that sort of knowledge that actually, if you're like Indiana Jones, if you're like H.M. Stanley, if you're like one of these people who's going in there with your great quest, then, yeah, you might easily succeed, but you'll only succeed in our terms, which is the outsider's terms. You won't be an insider and you won't be seeing these environments as anywhere other than something you're backing against of, or, or trying to overcome in some way. Yeah. And so 30 years after your encounter with this remote tribe in Papua New Guinea, you then went out in 2017, 2017 um, to go and reconnect with them. Was that sort of spurred on by your previous documentary or series by heading out there? Yes. Uh, a few things had happened al along 
my career path career path is that a good enough phrase <laughs> I don't know quite what my career is um I had been I had a lucky break and I was talking to Charlie Walker about this I, I, those who want to become adventurers or explorers it, it's very difficult financially it is it simply isn't easy a few people get picked out and are made tv personalities essentially but it's very difficult for them actually to do any true exploration with health and safety and all of that but they can make money the rest of us it, it's very very difficult um, but i had a break after i don't know how many years 10 years or so i'd written five books just scraping along working in a warehouse doing the best i could uh, the bbc gave me a, a camera and they said can you film what you do? So this became the beginning of uh, self-filming on telly. I was very lucky to have that sort of break. But years have gone by, and um, I was invited to go back to that community that I went through the initiation ceremony with because I was doing a project with Frank Gardner, BBC security correspondent. He wanted to see Birds of Paradise. I knew New Guinea very well, and it's wonderful. We went back to New Guinea. He saw this village, Kandangay, where I went through that initiation ceremony, and it was absolutely brilliant being reunited with them. After a generation, I hadn't been back there for a long, long time. I felt I had to move on mentally uh, from this community. And then an extraordinary thing happened. I bumped into someone who was called Michael, and he said, do you remember me? I said, oof, uh, <clears throat> not really, I'm <laughs> absolutely honest. He said, do you remember we climbed this mountain, we went up the central range together with the first people up there or the first people to cross this mountain. And he began telling me about this uh, trip I had done with him when he was only 17. He said, oh, it almost killed me. It was terrible. I said, oh, it was quite hard. And we began remembering this extraordinary expedition and in particular an encounter with the Yaifo. The Yaifo were an uncontacted group up in the mountains. They were the ones who had helped me over that mountain. In fact, Michael had handed me on to them. Um, and he said, do you know what? The Yaifa was still there and no one in all these years, no missionary, no doctor, no nurse, no outsider, none of us have done the journey that you did all those years ago. I thought, this is extraordinary. And the Yaifa is still there on this mountain. So I decided to go back and find out what had happened to the Yaifa. I just wanted to see if they were okay. And they had done this wonderful thing for me all those years before, helping me over this mountain that they themselves had never crossed. So off I went. I was landed by helicopter on the lowlands, um, found Michael again. Michael was absolutely horrified that he couldn't do this journey <laughs> all over again, that he'd dreaded, uh, well, it, it was only, it seemed to be recovering from it all these years later. Um, and, and off we went after, uh, I, I suppose, 30 years had gone by since our first journey, and we found the IFO, and it was the most wonderful thing to find that these characters who I'd known who were so good to me all those years ago as an innocent young man were still coping uh, on their own on the mountain despite the gold rush that was all around um, and despite all sorts of um, other problems that they faced and so that's that's the journey I did uh, with the IFO um, uh, or to find the IFO and um, unfortunately that journey all went wrong. I tried to leave the mountain. I came over the central range and towards the outside world and found my way blocked by uh, communal fighting. Other communities were battling it out. And I couldn't get out. I got malaria. I got dengue fever. 
and uh, it all was pretty bad actually. And later on, I discovered I'd become a centre of international headlines. You know, explorer lost, explorer kidnapped by cannibals. You know, all this, these stories were coming out. Um, and eventually, a helicopter came in, uh, sponsored by the Daily Mail, and um, and did get me out. But it was an interesting episode, if only because I was criticised quite a lot because I was someone who hadn't taken a phone, I hadn't taken a GPS or any backup. And a lot of people thought this is just really irresponsible in this day and age. Why not take this stuff? Um, And my answer at the time was the same answer I give now, which is that for me, you, you know, I'm not a new, I'm not a beginner at this. I've spent my entire life doing expeditions without this backup. And it's all about trying to explore the world on the local people's terms. So I explained to Michael, as we did this journey, look, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no backup. No one's going to come and help us because I don't want to see you as a guide. I want to see you as a friend because you are a friend. And you and the others who helped me to understand that if you want to do this journey we're all in this together and the truth is they could get me out quicker than any helicopter could um and so it was i suppose it was a philosophy i didn't want to abandon on that last expedition and it was in fact a problem of the outside world not the problem of the locals that got me into trouble because essentially it was the gold mining uh, activity that had created jealousy and therefore wars, and that is what stopped me getting out. But I, I think it's, I still stand by that philosophy that it's you've got to be prepared to do the journey on the terms of the locals, at least if you're trying to understand their world. It, it's very different if you're on the poles and, and there aren't people there. But if you're someone who comes as, as an outsider, you've got to be prepared to live the life of uh, the local people, which is what I did. And I wanted them to be able to trust me and see me as a friend and one of them. And I would have helped them as much as they did in fact help me. But I think there's a bigger point without going on about it too much, which is that we are incredibly connected in our world. And people often say, what is the point of an explorer nowadays? I think a large part of what an explorer's point is, so these are the people who go out into another world and bring back information. They're eyewitnesses to another world, whether it's the rainforest or out in the ocean or, or anywhere else. Um, and it's actually incredibly important to be disconnected, to not be connected uh, to the world that uh, we belong in, and more important than ever because we are so reliant on our phones and all the rest. Yeah, I, I suppose it's always nice to leave that behind how did you feel when you sort of came to the knowledge of all the fallout that was happening out of your control yeah as i said for me it's it's more than nice it uh, i've just felt it it, it's absolutely crucial that we separate if we're going on a journey we have to do that journey mentally and physically um I was quite shocked, bearing in mind I was ill. Um, no one had ever shown much interest in my journeys. I mean, I hadn't been on telly for a long, long time. And even when I 
was on telly. I was never a TV presenter. I was an explorer. I was an adventurer who was capturing that experience by camera. Um, so I was bewildered, really, that suddenly there's all this interest in me. And it was pretty brief. I think uh, newspaper coverage of me being lost was only about five days or so. And I thought, how could it be that this is such a big story with me just having been out of contact? I suppose I'd been out of contact for about three weeks, but I hadn't, I wasn't behind schedule for more than about five days. That's a very brief amount of time to, you know, all sorts of things can happen. Uh, a small flood or this or that. Um, and so it alarmed me that we've got so the world has got so into such a state where people are so connected, we expect to be in touch with everyone, uh, that this has become such a story. Yeah, I, I, I suppose when, you know, when you were my age and you were sort of going out, there wasn't any, there were phones, but you would have to sort of get a pay phone, spend about, what, a quid probably now per minute to phone home. Whereas now you have it almost instant. You just send a message and it within two seconds it's gone and I suppose people have become almost reliant on that form of communication and so when that disappears they they always fear the worst yeah and it's become normal for adventurers to be in contact even on the summit of Everest yeah. um, uh, and I'd, I'll always be a bit suspicious of that because I'll feel that the people who do this, um, who are my peers, I suppose, or, or some of them are, um, I feel that they haven't let go mentally. They'll always know that they can reach home. And, of course, there are health reasons for doing that. But on the other hand, perhaps we have to be a bit braver and say, I'm not prepared to do the journey unless I'm really I'm going to commit to it. What do you think the future holds for the modern adventurer? Basically, the modern adventurer. I mean, looking back on your... 30 years of how you started to now how do you sort of feel what the future holds for people who want to go exploring I think the journeys that I did just can't be done I mean, it, there isn't the possibility of just walking day after day week after week into a place that isn't mapped so those, the classic journeys are, are finished, but I think that's fine because there are other things to explore. Um, what I try and do is emphasize that we are all explorers by our very nature. Humans are inquisitive. They're fascinated by the world around them. And for some, it could just be they're exploring the world through the internet, but we're still driven by curiosity. So I think we don't, we shouldn't panic. Uh, we shouldn't be too disappointed that there are these big heroic journeys to do um because someone like david livingstone we think of him as the classic explorer there he was in the heart of africa searching for the source of the nile actually a lot of what he did was simply to bring back an idea of africa to europe the arabs knew central africa incredibly well and of course the africans themselves knew it very well but he's bringing a picture of africa back to us and that's what we need to remember we all are interpreting the world for our present era I also think that there, a lot of this it revolves about hu human experience. Um, and that is why I think it's important for us to disconnect, because I think that is what is the present, it's stifling 
exploration. Yeah. The, the fact that we're not letting go emotionally or even physically often from our own companions, from our own world, uh, curtails a lot of our adventures. If we can just have the courage to leave all this stuff behind and head off and disappear for a month, you know, how often does anyone disappear for more than a couple of days out of phone contact? Mm. Uh, I think these are incredibly exciting experiences to be brought back. The idea of just sort of getting out, oh, I, th I think there's a sort of term now, digital detoxing, there's, I think, that's sort of... Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Where you just... But yeah, I suppose the idea is to sort of get out, you know, turn your mobile off, get, just get away, get get out into a sort of wild situation where you're not sort of reliant on modern modern luxuries that you take for granted every day. Yeah, I think it's it's been the same for centuries, really, that the idea of just stepping aside from the comforts of life, from the from things that make you feel safe is incredibly important. And that's the same for anyone, whether you're someone who's going on a walk with your dog or a little old lady who climbs a hill. I'm, I'm so much more excited often by so-called ordinary people who just push themselves to their limit rather than someone who's climbing Everest. Because I know the person who climbs Everest, in theory, is a specialist. But the fact that anyone can just go out there, they may be really scared to go wandering in a wood for a, an afternoon but that's okay that that is still an, an adventure and I think that experience should be captured and shared and I think for all adventurers the exploring part of it is also part of the sharing part of it I think is that communicating back is incredibly important and valuable and um, it's, it's what lifts us all the feeling that there are people out there pushing our limits yeah it's it's quite sort of funny how i mean you look at the sort of exploring or the traveling industry now which some of them are on youtube but you're sort of you pioneered the idea of just holding a camera to your face and filming it which is now you know common all around the internet all around sort of filming people do it all the time but back in your you, back when you started that was just completely unheard of yes it, um i well it was and um yeah i did the, these sort of first um i suppose i brought the, the experience of an expedition for the first time to telly um the real everyday ups and downs of an expedition there have been people filming on film but not just keeping the camera going and, and giving you the full experience of what it's like to be afraid or excited uh, without a film crew and so on. Um, and I, I feel bad about it as well because it's there's a, a sense of self-obsession as well. If you're filming yourself, it, it's a bit, um, you know, I, th I think we're, we're too obsessed with ourselves and exploration has always had this, this problem in a way of <laughs> the explorer using the landscape as a wonderful stage on which to perform their great acts. So there's something not very nice about that. Um, so yes, there's a bad side to to that side, which I encourage really, the, or encouraged the very fact that I was out there sort of filming myself. Um, luckily, I think my incompetence in various ways <laughs> also came through. And um, yeah, I think I, I think that's it made it very human. The fact that I was actually 
recording everything from, you know, go off to the loo somewhere or have to do my, I'd often be filming while I was brushing my teeth. I think, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was lovely though. It's it great to have a chance to, to do something that would uh, move expedition, expeditions on in a way. Yeah, to sort of give it the raw feel for the audience. Mm. Um, and so how do you prepare for these? How did you prepare for, let's say, the Papua New Guinea expedition? Was it, are you, I mean, of course, people prepare differently. But in terms of yours, was it very much you had the idea and you just wanted to go and do it? And so you went. The original expedition, where I went through the initiation ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I well physically, I what I do is run and do press ups, and that's my main activity back here. So I, do, I arrive in a fairly fit state. Uh, mentally, I have things fairly open. That was a strange expedition. I was still rebounding in a way from this extraordinary experience of being in the northeast Amazon when I I knew I had survived by luck. And that's a terrible thought. I mean, no one should be conducting an expedition by luck. You know, you can't rely on luck coming your way all the time. And so I knew I'd been lucky to get away with it. And I knew I had to educate myself fast if I was going to carry on. Uh, so I went back to the warehouse, worked again, stacking books in this warehouse, went off to New Guinea with an open mind, but knowing that I wanted to deposit myself in a remote bit of rainforest. I knew I didn't want to go back to the Amazon where I'd almost died. I thought that's not a good idea. Go somewhere else. Uh, so I went to New Guinea and um, yeah, first of all, I lived with very remote people in West Papua, uh, then across the border. I was looking for somewhere to settle down and educate myself. And um, just found myself with this community in the middle Sepik. Um, there were about, well, they, they desperately wanted to hold an initiation ceremony, uh, which they hadn't done for 10 years. And a lot of the elders were very, very scared of holding this ceremony again. They thought the spirits might be angry. But, and that sounds terrible the way I've said it, like some sort of Hollywood script. But actually, that was reality. They, their ancestors had a sort of presence there, they believed. And um, they were worried that they had neglected them for years. Uh, and when I came along, it just was one of those things. I, 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 I tipped the balance. I made the elders think, oh, there's an outsider who's not calling us Stone Age or backward or primitive. Um, and he values our culture. And it, uh, the ceremony happened um, just because I had turned up. Um, yeah. And um, then I had to sort of surrender to it. But I was sort of, you know, I was only 24. I was up for anything, really. And um, I got a quite a high pain threshold, luckily, um, so that wasn't sort of in the foremost of my mind. I was just thinking, what a privilege, what a chance to learn what keeps this culture going, go through their ceremony and become a man as strong as a crocodile. I mean, it sounded brilliant, I thought. And then uh, because the whole thing was secret and sacred, um, I didn't know that how bad it would be. I mean, <laughs> it was terrible. That first day, uh, my head was shaven. I was led into the so-called crocodile nest. A big arena was erected around the spirit house. We were led into this arena, me and I think 16 other initiates with our little grass skirts, heads bowed, uh, and in we went. Uh, and 
all the elders set upon us with sticks and just began clubbing us. Um, <laughs> luckily, that first day we were protected by our uncles. By then I had an honorary uncle. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, after that, it got worse, really, because they were no longer there to protect us. And, um, yeah, then they cut our skins. That was bad. That was a... <laughs> I think uh, we lost about two pints of bloody, you know, having our skins cut with these bamboo blades. Um, yeah, that was, as I say, bad. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't as bad as the beating, which happened five times a day and went on and on. I mean, after a couple of weeks of this, you know, you're getting sick of it. Um, <laughs> and then it went on for another four weeks. Oh, dear. Um, and yet, you know, I still felt it was a privilege. And of course it was. I've been given the chance to see a sacred ritual which no one else had um, in the outside world recorded or certainly gone through. Um, yeah, when I came away with this extraordinary um, self-knowledge, I suppose, um, but also feeling of pride um, and also preparation. The ceremony is a preparation for young men to go out and, and make something of themselves, obviously for the sake of the village, but also for the sake of themselves. Um, and that now was my preparation, not just in terms of understanding that culture, which I did go back to uh, a couple of years later, but also in life, I felt, okay, now it's it's time to be an explorer um, and um, do it in the same fashion, go listen for the to the locals and then using that head off on a testing journey. I don't think um, we've had anyone on the show who's had quite the travel story or experience like that. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it's different from, say, Sean Conway, who I think you've had on, um, who is doing exploration in a different way. I think it, for him, I, I can't speak for him, but his journeys are inspiring to me because he's, you can see he's pushing himself, he's pushing himself, and he's not only just doing that, he's drawing others with him he's he's like a pied piper of the <laughs> of the uh, of the running track or the the roadway uh, because he's sort of sucking a huge amount of people along with him and i think there are all sorts of different explorers out there and um as i say i think we all are explorers by nature so the more people who are out there encouraging others the better yeah well, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. Oh dear, I think I'm meant to, have, am I meant to rehearse this or something? Anyway, <laughs> I, I shall do my best. You, no uh, to the first one. I mean, they're, they're very easy. Um, it's sort of on your trips, what's the one item or gadget that you always bring with you? Oh, gee, that isn't uh, easy. Um, <laughs> after I like, go to... Yeah. Sorry, after hearing you say you bring nothing, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's not easy. <laughs> I always have a survival kit on my expeditions. And of course, this varies from place to place, uh, habitat to habitat. Um, but my mum, when I first set out, was very keen on me having a survival kit. She'd read somewhere that all explorers had a survival kit. Um, and I suppose it, it's changed now, the most valuable thing for me is a photo of my family. I've got three little children and uh, and, and a wife, I should say. Um, <laughs> um, I think that is the most valuable thing I have with me on journeys now. 
because it reminds me when times are bad that this is that I've got to get back. You know, this is not just about me; it's about others out there, and there is a world out there. So, two or three years ago, when I was stuck in New Guinea and, and I was, you know, I was going to die if I didn't get out because I had dengue fever, malaria, uh, trapped by warring factions. Uh, I kept on looking at this photo, particularly one actually of my uh, boy Freddie and Natalia, my uh, older daughter. They were running at me in this photo with such a glee in their faces and they had snowballs in their hands. They were just about to throw these snowballs at me. If just seeing them vulnerable, um, needing me to get out, that was incredibly important. Yeah, so I, th I think that would be what I would take, a photo of them. What is your favourite adventure book or travel book? Hmm. Oh, dear, dear. <laughs> yes, I would have thought I would have one, uh, but I don't. Um, uh, I think... I don't really know. I, I've got hundreds of travel books and I review travel books. Uh, I sit on panels, do award prizes for travel books. Um, there's one that springs out, which is In Patagonia by Bruce Chatwin. And I mention it simply because uh, it was a very early influence on me. It was just at the time when I was stacking books in the warehouse for my first expedition, gathering myself together. Uh, and this one was selling like anything. And it made me think, wow, yes, maybe I can document my journey. So, um, yeah, in Patagonia by Bruce Chaplin. He was not an explorer. In a way, he was quite a fantasist. Um, uh, but nonetheless, I knew his mum and dad. And uh, again, it was a sign that it was possible to do these things. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good one. I, ha I haven't, haven't come across it yet. Hmm. Oh, there we are. It's waiting you. I'm waiting you. <laughs> um, why are adventures important to you? I think because they show us what is possible and inspire us to do the same in our own way. And we live vicariously through them. We think, wow, that's great. I could never do that. But uh, we're also uplifted. And hopefully we also encourage to do the same in an environment that suits us. Okay. Um, what is your favourite quote? Hmm. Oh, am I allowed to choose one of my own? You are. <laughs> it's very self-indulgent, but it's all I can think of just off the top of my head. I'm trying to think, is there another one out there? Hmm. Um, there are lots out there. And in fact, I do an explorer quote of the day on Twitter every day. But I can only think of something I have on my website, which is, to me, exploration isn't about planting a flag or conquering nature or going somewhere in order to make a mark. It's about totally the opposite of that. It's about opening yourself up, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and allowing the place to make its mark on you. Very nice. Well, I'm sure there's... Thank you. <laughs> I can't even say that was a load of rubbish. <laughs> um, anyway, it is meant to, it's about uh, how important it is to not just assert yourself yeah. on the world, but try and learn from it. 
because after your trip in Papua New Guinea, you came into quite a lot of flack by um, The Guardian from the UK. Yes, uh, I thought it was almost racist in, sen- in the sense that it was all about how a white middle-class person who'd, who'd gone off uh, almost like a sort of playboy um, to just to sort of have a jolly out in New Guinea. And it was an old trope, really, that the white man has to be an imperialist. But my entire career, as I've, I've gone on and on about it with you, uh, is meant to be eroding that idea. It, that's actually... Um, I'm very aware of the imperialism that has been in exploration and that I think we have to do the opposite. We have to listen and learn. Um, so it's a very ill-informed article in particular uh, that I'm thinking of in The Guardian um, uh, because, yes, there is a tradition of, of inserting your will on places, but it wasn't what I was about. And so it's very lazy thinking. Um, so there we are. I think she, I think she came into quite a lot of stick for us as well. Well, um, the thing is that I had a lot of support from lovely people and even not very nice people, <laughs> um, fellow explorers, uh, who some of them, whom I've been quite rude about. Um, oh, I tried to be kind and everything, but but I really had a lovely response from a lot of them, and they stepped in and said, "Look, this is it's not fair." Um, so it was very, very, very nice, actually, very um, heartwarming. Um, so a lot of people stood by me who I thought are just using exploration as a sort of career um, and they're not interested in places and people at all. Um, so it's very, it's a lovely thing, lovely thing, actually, that came out of it, which was, um, yeah, there's a lot of great people out there. Um, Asda Humphreys said some very kind things, Rand Fines, um, um, yeah. The bloke whose name I do know incredibly well, but I've forgotten who walked down the Nile. Um, the Nile, I Leverson Wood. Leverson Wood, great. He said some lovely things, and uh, that was very, very heartening. Very heartening. Um, and I think it was a swipe actually at the whole, the whole idea of the, the white man going out rather than me. I just represented uh, the, uh, the the typical sort of adventurer who generally is fairly privileged. But it's it's too lazy as to say that we're all doing it for our own benefit. Um, I, I think there's a role for all sorts of explorers, um, and uh, it's it's yeah too easy just to criticise people because they have gone out there and done things. Yeah, um, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these big grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to become an explorer? or explore? Yeah, I'd, I'd say start not too big. Uh, it's, yes, it's very hard to get a chance in life to, to go away for a whole year, for example, to step aside from your job and pay the mortgage. And, and it, it's just hard, ordinary life for most people. Um, but try and do something small first because then you, you can put your foot in the water, see what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and what you really want to do. Um, I think it's very easy to come up with a great idea, like uh, cycle around the world, or um, I read somewhere of some people who are on a tandem bike, um, a man and woman, 
couple going off around the world. Uh, these are great, but I think it's very important just to take it step by step and do a trial, do a cycle up down to Scotland a couple of times just to see how you, if you, if that's really what you want to do. Um, because yes, you will, you get very few chances to do a big adventure, so it's better just to, to just give it a practice first before you set out to see if that's what you want to do with this valuable chance that you've got. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I don't feel you've, I've convinced you there. Shall no, I no, I completely <laughs> agree. I, I think before I, well, I actually sort of just jumped into it straight by cycling across America, but for one of my trips to sort of plan everything, I cycled up to Edinburgh and came back just to sort of plan there we it. Are. I didn't plan even know it. that, and I've, I've got, <laughs> I've got the right country. Uh, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, the other thing is, I think, make mistakes early. Uh, I went out very, very naive, and I, I was lucky, as I've said, to get away with it on my first Amazon expedition. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, luckily, I was helped along by various people. But um, if I had made those mistakes early, if I had joined the Duke of Edinburgh's award, or if I had been a Boy Scout, uh, or just got off on a lot of camping trips, um, I would have been better prepared. And there's nothing like making mistakes early, because that's the time you learn. Um, and yeah, I was I was very fortunate, but um, I, it might easily have gone badly wrong. So what are you doing now and how can people follow your journeys and, and adventures? Oh, well, I'm, I'm stuck like all of us at the moment uh, due to the various lockdowns and um, I'm biding, I'm sort of gathering myself, um, but uh, I haven't quite chosen the next expedition. There will be something happening and it's a question of what country it's safe to visit from the point of view of the locals with COVID. So, for example, Papua New Guinea is closed now uh, to, entirely to outsiders. Indonesia pretty well is. Um, and uh, so I don't know what is what will transpire. I, I do want to go back to Papua New Guinea to finish the journey that I didn't manage to complete because of these warring factions. And it'll be challenging, possibly dangerous, because humans are very unreliable. I'm, I'm meant to be an expert at rainforest travel, uh, but that's not to do with the human factor. If people have got a gun, uh, you know, anything can happen. So I've got to be careful about that. That's that's one I'm that's foremost in my mind, um, and I hope to do that this year. But we, we shall see. Um, I yeah. So my website is benedictallen.com, and I try and tweet every day some sort of inspiring thought, motivation through exploration. Is that? <laughs> uh, I think I should call it that. That sounds rather good. Uh, so I try and uh, I try and be positive uh, on Twitter and Instagram once a week as well, do a little video. Amazing. Yeah, I've been following your Explorer of the Week on Instagram. Oh, have you? Ooh. Oh, yes. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> That's one follower. <laughs> Surely there are more out there. Well, for people listening, you can check, check Benedict out on Twitter and Instagram. And, I mean, your stories are absolutely incredible. And I can't thank you enough for coming on today and... And telling them. Oh, that's okay. The, um, I've got, oh, I've got a book coming out. Um, Explorer. It's called Explorer. And it. I'm not saying that just 
to get it back to me again, um, the conversation. <laughs> but it's just is quite interesting. It's something we've touched on quite a lot, which is what in what is the role of an explorer? That's what the book is about. But it's um, I think it's I, I, as I say, the central idea of the book, but maybe uh, just in our conversation today, is that we all are explorers. Um, I just think it's so important to remember that because it's so easy to think, oh, it's all very well for them out there, these people who've got money or time or or the inclination. Um, what about us with our busy lives, you know? But you can get away, um, even if it's for a day, just to have, just get outside yourself and your world and, and find another one. Is the book out or is it coming out in... <laughs> no, I wouldn't have show it so shamelessly plugged it if it was already available. No, it's, uh, it's uh, I think August is the latest estimate. It's been put off for a year, publication. It's sitting there waiting to go, um, but yeah. Well, well, when it's out, we'll put it up on the website. Yeah, do, yeah. and for your friends and family. and <laughs> Yeah, by 50. <laughs> well, Benedict, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, no, thank you. No, enjoyed our chat. Yeah, uh, it's been great. Next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast. Thank you for making all these noises um, when I'm stuck in, the, in this hammock. And bearing in mind, first night, my machete, my bow and arrow was outside. And it turned out that there would be an armadillo that had gone underneath my hammock. And it was using my hammock as a sort of shelter and things like this. And this jaguar was circling me, going in and out, making all these horrible noises that it makes. And it finally like pounced for it and went for it, went off into the bushes. And in the morning, because um, I was too too afraid to scream or yell or anything like this, and I said to the guys, you know, I heard these noises. What could it be? And they come up to me and they look at the ground and look up at me and they just say jaguar. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com. I hope to see you next time for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.